Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 5th of December, Dan Hater taught two sessions at Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions where Dan took us through the book of Revelation. Dan is on the staff at Life Church Peterborough and also runs the Relational Mission Year Team training programme. Let's take a listen to the session. It's wonderful to... To, to be here um it's a yeah bit a bit different to last time uh, i wasn't sat in front of a computer screen but it's uh, i've got used to teaching on zoom uh, which is something i never thought would be the case but um it's really really good to to see let me just pop myself on gallery view so i can actually see uh, everyone um yeah really good to to see lots of faces um and uh yeah we are we are looking at revelation and eschatology today which um i hope i hope i'm not a one-trick pony but i haven't got tired of teaching on revelation or eschatology yet so it's 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 something that i do do quite a lot of but something i just haven't got bored of yet and um hopefully it will emerge why i think uh revelation and eschatology are uh, it's a, a book and a topic that we really need, actually, um, as as a ch- as churches, as Christians, uh, is perhaps a somewhat neglected uh, topic. So I'm really, really excited to uh, to be able to uh, to teach on that. Just to kind of help set your expectations, I've sent out relatively complete notes. Um, so the idea is that we're not necessarily going to touch on every single thing that's in the notes. I think when you're teaching, there's always a, and particularly when you're sending notes out, there's always a choice. Do I manage people's expectations by putting not much in the notes or do I put more in the notes than we're going to be able to do? And I've chosen to do the second option. So if we don't get through every single detail of the notes, don't worry, that's partly intentional. Um, but there's some stuff that you can go back uh, to look at in your own time. Um, my aim really today is well my primary aim is to get you excited about revelation and eschatology or perhaps more correctly that god would get you excited about it because um i may manage to get some of you excited who may be wired in a similar way to me but i think what we really want is the holy spirit to be instilling a, a desire for these things in us so that's my my main aim um but i suppose practically speaking what my aim is is to give you Uh, Not so much all of the answers, but to give you a framework, uh, which hopefully means that the book of Revelation and eschatology are a little bit less daunting. That's that's what I want to do. So we might not necessarily answer all of the questions about what does this specific horn on the beast's head refer to. But hopefully I'll give you a framework where you can, if you want to go away and look at that question without being freaked out by the book as a whole. Um, and that's really what we what we want to do. So um, let's let's jump in. We're doing Revelation first, and then we'll do eschatology later. And in a sense, they're related because there are elements of the Book of Revelation, as we see, that that are looking into the future, um, but they're not completely interchangeable. And I think that's worth just clarifying at the beginning that when we're talking about the Book of Revelation, um, the Book of Revelation is not just a book about the distant future. Um, And so when we're talking about Revelation, we're not only talking about here are things that will happen ages in the future. Um, The book of Revelation is a kind is a particular kind of book and some of it is to do with the future and some of it actually is much more to do with the past and the present. And so we'll see 
why that is. Whereas eschatology is much more, uh, the word means study of the last times. And so it's much more to do with what are we expecting in the future? So they relate to each other, but it's worth just kind of disclaimer at the outset. They don't, compl they don't completely overlap, they, but they partially overlap. Um, but it makes sense to do them both because in a sense, I don't think it's a mistake that Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Uh, so even though uh, you, uh, you will find certain chapters in the Bible that aren't in Revelation that are probably much more detailed about what's going to happen at the end of time. Um, so I can think of other chapters in the New Testament that go into much more detail about the end of time than Revelation actually does. Uh, the way that Revelation depicts the ultimate victory of Christ and the ultimate victory of the church, um, I think is so wonderful that I think there's, I, I don't think it's a, it's a mistake or a coincidence that it does end up being the last book of the New Testament. So let's jump into Revelation and then we'll deal with eschatology a bit later. Um, I wonder how you react to the book of Revelation. Uh, I think, I think broadly speaking, there's probably two extreme reactions. I think because some people... The, the reaction is obsession, like you're going to come up with charts and graphs and figure out exactly when Jesus is going to uh, return. Is it going to be on the 8th of April, 2075, just after breakfast, uh, like that kind of obsession might not be the right word. Speculation might be a better word, because I think we need to be obsessed with the Bible. But I think there's an unhealthy obsessional speculation that sometimes can happen when it comes to revelation. But then at the other extreme, there's also neglect. And um, I don't know what kind of churches you guys come from, but in the kind of church that I would come from, where we would be, what we would be more in danger of when it comes to the book of Revelation would probably be neglect, because it's scary, it, it looks different, it's, it's a different kind of writing. And so I think some people react to it by obsessing over it in a speculative way. Some people, and I would put myself in this camp and the kinds of churches that I've grown up in, uh, would be more in danger of neglecting it because they think, well, we don't want to touch it with a barge pole because most people who do touch it tend to become a little bit weird. And so we're going to stick with the Gospels and Paul's letters and we're going to leave Revelation to, uh, you know what, as long as Jesus comes back and we go to heaven, I don't mind what's in Revelation. That kind of approach. Um, now, I wonder what it might be for you. Some, we might have a little bit of a, a smattering of different approaches. But what I, as I've said, what I want to partly do today is convince you that Revelation really matters. Um, now, one of the reasons it matters is it, it's in scripture and i think for after two years worth of training in going through the bible i hope that you're convinced by now that all of scripture is breathed out by god and is useful um and so just that as our as a foundation should make us think this has got to be useful but i also think that revelation is needed and is an encouragement to us and a challenge to us in the times that we're living in um because it really speaks into a number of a number of things to do with the idea of uncertainty in the world and the idea of is there a hope is there actually going to be some kind of eventual resolution to all of this and i think coming out of uh, nearly two years worth of uh, covid and obviously we're still in some sense in the middle of it but th and there's still a sense of uncertainty but we've come out of a year and a half that is just for most of us i imagine probably the, the most unusual two years of our lives in terms of what we're seeing uh, nationally and internationally and the book of Revelation serves us by helping us make sense of God being in control and sovereign in the midst of everything like that that's going on. Um, I think increasingly another area that the book of Revelation helps us is I think increasingly in this nation and in the Western world, we may not be seeing the kind of persecution that we would see in other parts of the world where there's imprisonment or being killed for the sake of the gospel. 
But I do think increasingly we're seeing a, uh, a form of persecution where Christians, I think, are increasingly marginalized and silenced if they hold to faithfully to what the scriptures teach. And I think the book of Revelation is written in part to suffering and marginalized and persecuted Christians. And so I think it has a lot to say to us. We might not be going through the same kind of persecution or same kind of opposition as the initial readers of Revelation were. But we are nonetheless, I think, going to be facing increased levels of um, rejection and ostracization. And I think the book of Revelation encourages and challenges us in the midst of that. And maybe another area, just to throw in a few, I think would be the area of spiritual lukewarmness. Um, I think the, the it's it's no surprise, I think, that the church in the West, if you're going to look at the church in the West compared to the, the church in the majority world, um, I think there is a danger of Christianity and worship of Jesus becoming something lukewarm, something that isn't um, isn't all in, where we're not um, as, by and large, if you look at the landscape of Christianity in the West, it's not a kind of radical commitment to Jesus that you would perhaps see in certain parts of the world. And I think Revelation challenges us in the area of, are we radically committed to Jesus? Or is it, or is Jesus something that's added on alongside everything else in our lives? And so I think the book of Revelation is necessary for us. And so hopefully you'll be convinced by the end of the day. But um, let's just briefly talk about a few introductory um, matters when it comes to Revelation. I'm going to try and do this relatively briefly just to let you know here are some things that we do need to take into account when we're reading the book of revelation and um one of those is uh, let me just share my screen for this because i think when we're talking about introductory stuff having something visual to to look at can be can be quite helpful um right we're going to talk about different overall approaches to the book of revelation um and i'm going to highlight that basically people tend to approach the book of revelation as a whole in broadly four different ways. And it's important to think through which way you are gonna approach Revelation because that will often affect the way you then apply it and the way you then understand it. And so um, four approaches, they're cool. so their technical terms are preterist, futurist, historicist, and idealist. And the idea behind these is preterist is basically an approach to Revelation that says, this is basically mainly talking about events or things that are going on uh, within the lifetime of the original readers um, or it's mainly events that are referring to the lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD that's one particular preterist kind of understanding or another one would be oh this is these are events that are going up to the fall of Rome in the fifth century AD and nothing to do with the long-term future um did I just drop out there momentarily? Yes, you did, Dan. Okay, yeah. let me just repeat then what I, what I was saying before um, before I dropped out. Um, had I had I explained what preterist was? Yes, you, you kind yeah. of got to the end of um, of preterist. Are you basically we cut out when you said up to the fifth fall of Rome in the fifth century? Okay, so it's broadly speaking, preterist is. Um, uh, so some people would even claim that um, who, who are preterists would even claim that there's nothing to do with the long term future in Revelation. It's all symbolism referring to first century events. Um, now, in your own time, you might want to um, go through the thinking through what might be some pros and some cons of each approach. Now, I'm not necessarily saying pros and cons in terms of which one's right, which one's wrong, but what are some um, perhaps some advantages to it? So, for example, the preterist view, what are some pros? 
an example would be if you're interpreting the book of revelation in a preterist way it the historical context of the first century can help you interpret it that might be a pro a con might be it feels very far removed from us how does it actually apply to our own context 2000 years on so that's what i mean by by pros and cons not necessarily is it right is it wrong but if that is the right approach what might be an advantage to that what might be some disadvantages um so that's preterist futurist is another overall approach to revelation that some people take um as the name suggests that is everything is about the future it's all about the long-term future um it's pretty much nothing within revelation has happened yet and we are waiting for it to start so that's a futurist approach to the book um there's then the historicist book and i realize i've reversed these in the notes and in the powerpoint the historicist view is the idea that revelation is giving you a bird's eye view of the whole of church history and so people who are take a historicist view to revelation may well say here is the particular point of the book of revelation that we ourselves are living in and they say up and the chapters up until now have been describing things like the second world war or the sack of rome by the visigoths or the first world war so on and now we are also waiting for some more events to happen that would be a historicist approach and then finally there's an idealist approach so some interpreters take this which is the extreme idealist view is that revelation is a symbolic description of the struggle between good and evil that there's no actual events that are referred to it's basically a symbolism for the fact that there's a struggle between good and evil but at the end of the day good wins because god wins now that's an extreme idealist view but the more standard idealist view would be yes there may well be some historical events that are referred to but by and large these are symbols that are communicating uh, a, a bigger reality than just here are things that are literally going to happen this is telling us something about Jesus and his victory and uh, the victory of God and the fact that the church ultimately conquers and the beast is uh, a symbol for the whole of evil humanity or the whole of uh, like evil powers that set themselves up against God rather than necessarily referring to a specific person or a specific empire so that would be an idealist view so those, those are your four main approaches uh, let me stop screen sharing so that I'm not just a tiny little dot at the bottom of the screen. Um, so you obviously, unless you are an expert in Revelation or you've done a lot of reading, you're probably not in a position right now to say, ah, here is my approach to Revelation. You may well be thinking, okay, I, I, I wanna have some information that's gonna help me choose. So I'm gonna put my cards on the table. Before I do that, just to say, very godly people have disagreed about the book of Revelation. So just to say before I put my cards on the table, that doesn't mean Dan is right about everything to do with Revelation. We're going to swallow everything he says, and then we're going to go and tell all of our leaders who might disagree with Dan that Dan's right and we need to change the way we approach Revelation. Godly, very clever people over the centuries have disagreed. Um, but there is an encouragement in the midst of that, which is that by and large, um, when you read um commentaries on the book of revelation written by scholars who really know the kind of literature that we're talking about they may disagree on a lot of the details but there's actually quite a lot of broad agreement on the overall ideas going on in revelation and that's encouraging because i think when you're looking at a lot of popular fanciful kind of um very like popular level works on revelation they can often come across as oh my 
goodness, everyone's disagreeing on everything. Whereas actually when you read the works of commentators who sometimes are not that great at getting their point across to, uh, to people who aren't also scholars, but when you read their books, you realize, oh, there's actually broad agreement and the disagreement is on the, de the details. And that's encouraging because it shows us that we're not talking about a book that is incomprehensible. We're just talking about a book that is written in such a different kind of writing to that we to what we're used to that we're not immediately able to always understand what it means so i'm going to put my my cards on the table and my cards on the table is to say that i mainly approach the book of revelation as a mix of the preterist view and the idealist view um I'm going to throw a little bit of historicist and futurist in as well, because I'm British and it means I need to have some kind of middle of the road approach to everything. But by and large, I go for preterist view because I think this is written to real churches in the first century. And so it has to make sense to them. Um, but I also take an idealist view in the sense that I do not think that uh, the book of Revelation is only telling us here are specific events that have happened. I think that there are some symbols in the book of Revelation that can't be reduced down to a particular event, but are speaking of bigger realities. Um, so by and large, I'm reading the book thinking most of this stuff is the kind of stuff that the early church is looking at and thinking, we know what you're talking about. But I'm going to also throw a, a healthy dose of futurist in, in the sense that I do not think that the book of Revelation all happened in the first century AD. I don't think you can read the last few chapters of Revelation particularly and think, yeah, this is basically a symbolic description of the destruction of Jerusalem. I think that it's talking about new creation. So I'm going to I'm going to say the early church would have read the book of Revelation and gone. I know the kind of things you're talking about, but they would also have read it and understood that it's predicting the ultimate victory of Christ and the ultimate victory of the church when Christ returns. So that's me. That's cards on the table. But. My aim is not necessarily to convince you of the right approach, but to give you a framework within which you can do your own kind of understanding of the book. Um, by the way, just to say, if at any, I, I will try and pause from time to time for questions. We'll do a, a few breakout room discussions as well. But if you do have any questions at any point, you can either just unmute yourself and interrupt me. I won't mind. Don't please don't worry about being rude. Um, or if you find it easier, you can pop a question in the chat and uh, it will come up and I'll be able to to try and approach that but um please don't feel like you can't interrupt me um because I, I can talk for england so sometimes i just need someone to to shut me up whether that's with a, a question in the chat or uh, unmuting yourself and saying dan what about this so um just a few more introductory things and then we'll get to actually jump into the book itself um beyond saying what's our overall approach to revelation we need to ask what kind of book revelation is and so uh, three kinds of writing that revelation is um is an apocalypse that's one thing um an apocalypse means an unveiling by the way apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world apocalypse means unveiling or revelation and so part of what revelation is doing is trying to unveil god's perspective on things it's trying to show us here's what's actually going on behind the scenes and so when we're reading revelation we should ex that means that we should expect that we're not reading a literal description of things that are happening as if we're meant to expect a seven-headed beast to come out of the Mediterranean Sea, we're reading a symbolic description of essentially God's view or heaven's view on what is going on. So it's an apocalypse, but it's not just an apocalypse, it's also a prophecy. So in, ver in, in verse three, 
uh, in chapter one, it's referred to as a prophecy. And what this means is, um, in line with the prophets in the Old Testament, this is a book that is going to bring challenge to those who need to repent and is going to bring encouragement to those who need comfort. That's how prophecy works, really. You read in the Old Testament, there's challenge that comes to the people that need to repent and there's encouragement that comes to those who need to be comforted. And there's also a healthy dose of here's what's going to happen in the future. So it's an apocalypse, it's a prophecy, but it's also a letter. And for me, this was a game changer when I suddenly realized the whole book of Revelation is a letter. The whole thing is, it's not just, it's not that we get seven letters in chapters two and three. It's that the whole of Revelation is a letter and that letter was sent to seven specific churches in the first century AD. And so in that sense, they're reading over one another's shoulders as well. They get to see what Jesus is saying to the church down the road, not just to them. But when I realized the whole thing's a letter, it made me think, therefore, this had to be useful to them in the first century. And you might hear me say that and think, yeah, but doesn't that mean it's then irrelevant for us 2000 years later? And I would suggest the opposite is true, that if it's relevant to them in the first century, I think it makes it more relevant to us in the 21st century, because we're not thinking, are these things that we may end up facing in 2000 years time? We're thinking these are things that the church has already faced and has been warned against and has been encouraged. Therefore, these are the kind of things that are going to be relevant to us. And actually, we do that with the rest of the Bible as well, don't we? We don't read Paul's letters and say, uh, that wasn't actually written to a church in the first century. Um, no, no, the book of Revelation was written for us, but it wasn't written to us in that sense. So when I'm reading Revelation, I'm thinking, what would the early church have understood by this? And if I can understand what the early church would have understood by it, I can then think, how does that now apply to me 2000 years on? So three kinds of writing, apocalypse, prophecy and a letter. And part of what makes Revelation difficult is it's a mix of the three. And so that's why we need to be careful as we're approaching it. Um, who's the author? John is the author. Um, traditionally, that's the Apostle John um, or John the Elder. And so there's debate in church history about whether is it the Apostle John or is it a guy called John the Elder? Um, I'm happy with either at the end of the day, but most church tradition would tend to side with um, the same guy who wrote the fourth gospel, John the Apostle. And it was probably either written just before 70 AD or uh, in the 90s AD. I'd go for the second option. I'd say the majority of scholars would probably go for the second option, but it's a bit of a toss up between the two, um, either in the late 60s or the 90s AD. Um, so it's either during the reign of the Emperor Nero or during the reign of the Emperor Domitian. And um, I don't think it makes a massive difference to the way you interpret the book when you think it was, um, when you think the date was, but those are the two options. And um, before we jump in to look at how does the book as a whole fit together, what's the structure, just a few quick tips um, as we're approaching Revelation. Uh, let me just screen share again because it uh, might just help us as we're following through. Um, when we're approaching the book of Revelation, there are a number of things we need to bear in mind, but I'd say four particular tips that are particularly helpful. The first of those is the Old Testament. The more you know the Old Testament, the more Revelation is going to make sense because Revelation, I, I came across a brilliant metaphor for this by a guy called Peter Lightheart. Uh, he says this, John writes with scripture rather than about it. 
John paints an apocalypse and the Old Testament is his palette. Now, I think that's a great illustration because what John is doing when he's writing the book of Revelation is not saying, ah, oh, listen to what the prophet Isaiah said. Here's what it means. Instead, what he's doing is he's he's got the whole of the Old Testament in mind and he is describing something by using the language of the Old Testament. And that means that the more we understand the Old Testament and the more we understand what the language of the Old Testament means, the more we're then going to be able to understand what John means in Revelation. So that's a really helpful tool. So um, biggest tip is become familiar with your Old Testaments um, as a shortcut get a cross-reference Bible so that as you're reading through, you can think, what parts of the Old Testament is this referring to? Um, another thing to bear in mind is symbolism. He Revelation is heavily symbolic, and so we need to bear that in mind. And that means that when you're reading about um, a beast or something going on in Revelation, you're not immediately thinking, this is literally what's going to happen. Instead, you're thinking, who or what is this referring to? And what does it tell me about the person it's referring to? So, for example, if I said, um, um, oh, that, so a, a bit, bit of a kind of a, a rude thing to say about someone, but oh, that guy's such a pig. You, you wouldn't think I'm talking about the fact that he's got a big snout and that he tends to live in mud and so on. What I'm, what I'm doing there is I am referring to a particular person, but I am saying something about them with that symbol. So I might be referring to the fact that they're greedy. I might be referring to the fact that they tend to be quite messy or so on. And so that's how symbols work. They tend to refer to something, but they also tell us something about the thing they're referring to. And that's really important to bear in mind in Revelation. Otherwise, you end up collapsing the symbol into the reality and you end up well, in the in the worst case, you end up expecting there to be a seven headed beast coming out of the Mediterranean Sea. And can I tell you the reality of what the beast is referring to is far more dark, but also far more real, even within our own age than a literal seven headed beast coming out of the sea. And the problem if we don't realize that there's symbolism in the book of Revelation is I think we don't actually appreciate the challenge of the book of Revelation. Um, a third thing to be aware of is numbers. Sorry for those of you who don't like maths. But those of you who do like maths, you will love the book of Revelation um, because numbers are everywhere and numbers mean uh, particular things. Um, so quickly, the numbers four, seven and twelve, for example, in the book of Revelation tend to refer to the idea of completeness. Um, twelve is also the number of God's people, twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve very often has a symbolic meaning referring to the people of God. Um, really sorry for those of you who don't like maths we're going to ta start talking about things like square numbers and triangular numbers square numbers so when you times a number by itself often represents things related to god triangular numbers now this is a hard one to explain but it's basically when you've got a number that you can represent as a pyramid so for example six you can have one at the top then two then three adds up to six it creates a triangle when you represent it graphically um 666 is a triangular number, for example. Um, and very often, I, I didn't figure this out, other people who are far cleverer have figured this out, but very often triangular numbers in Revelation tend to refer to stuff in opposition to God. And so numbers, most books of the Bible, I would tell people, don't, be, don't get taken in by this idea that there's symbolism behind the numbers. With Revelation, that's completely true though. So I think with Revelation, if you're looking at a number and you're thinking, is there a symbolic meaning to this number? The chances are there probably is. 
And it may be that the best option is go and find a commentary or consult your later, your, your local maths guru to try and figure out what kind of number is this? Is it a square? Is it a triangular number? And they might be able to help you in the process of understanding the book of Revelation. And then finally, we need a healthy dose of humility as we approach this book, because godly, clever people have disagreed over the centuries about what some of the symbols mean. And I think what it means is we need to be clear on the big things and we need to hold fast to what is clear and what the big things are. But we also need to be willing to admit that we don't have all of the answers. And so we may have some strong convictions on a small detail in Revelation. I think we need to be willing to admit the possibility that we might be wrong about that small detail while still holding very strongly to the things that we know for sure and the things that really matter. So Old Testament symbolism, numbers and humility, those would be four particular tools, I think, as we're approaching the book. But um, let me briefly pause. Does anyone have any questions about anything we've done so far? I realize that's a deluge of intro information, but any clarification or questions that people would like to follow up on? Nope. Okay, well, if you do think of a question at any time and you want to ask, like I said, you can unmute yourself and interrupt me or just pop it in the chat and we'll uh, we'll deal with it. Now, um, one final thing we need to do before we jump into the book itself is to talk about the structure of Revelation. Revelation is very, very carefully structured. It's one of those books where the... I mean, I don't know what literally happened. Is John sitting down literally recording word for word everything he's seen? Or has he kind of taken a load of notes and thought, right, how am I going to actually now report this and structure it really carefully? So either God has done the hard work for John and has kind of structured the message itself in that very detailed way, or John has gone away with all of these visions that he's had and is sitting down and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, structure it, structuring it in an incredibly careful way. Um, but you've got a, a bit of a detailed structure on your notes um, and we're not going to go through that in detail. We're going to go through a slightly higher level structure. Uh, but before we go through it, just to say one of the most important things when we're approaching Revelation is knowing the overall structure and how it fits together. And um, I remember listening to John Hosier a few years ago teaching on how to preach through Revelation and he gave a warning to preachers and said, never preach through the book of Revelation if you don't know how the whole thing fits together. It says, because otherwise you will end up coming to the end of chapter seven and you'll end up in a massive self-contradiction because there are things that happen within the structure of Revelation that if you don't understand how it fits together, you are going to assume that the next chapter basically chronologically follows on from the previous one. And if you haven't got your head around the fact that that's not always the way that Revelation works, and you just jump into a preaching series or a Bible study on Revelation without knowing how it fits together, you could end up getting yourself massively confused. So let's quickly look at the overall structure. Let me just screen share again. So you've got a slightly simplified structure. You've got the more detailed ones, one on your notes. Um, broadly speaking, Revelation has an introduction and a conclusion as all good works tend to have, but then it's divided into four visions. The first of those visions, which I've called in the spirit one, in the spirit two, in the spirit three, because each of those visions is introduced by a phrase like I was in the spirit or I was taken in the spirit or the spirit took me. That happens, that expression happens four times in Revelation and it introduces a brand new vision. And so in the spirit one, which goes from chapters one to three, this is a vision that John has of the exalted Christ who sends messages to seven churches. 
And uh, that's what happens within that first vision. We then get a second vision, and this is the longest of all of them, which is chapters four all the way to the end of 16. And the theme of that vision is that God is in control, the lamb has conquered, and therefore his people will end up conquering, despite the fact that they face opposition. I think that's kind of, a, I suppose, in a nutshell, what's going on in that vision. And it's the longest one of the bunch. And so you could say it's the most important, potentially. Um, it's definitely the most important when it comes to a lot of the warnings and challenges that we could hear for ourselves. But it's the longest of all of the visions. We then get the third vision, which is in the spirit three that I've called. And uh, you could call it a tale of two cities because that vision starts with a description of the prostitute Babylon. And it finishes with the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared, prepared as a bride for her husband. And in a sense, the vision is taken up with what's going to happen to the city, the prostitute Babylon, and how does she contrast with the heavenly city Jerusalem that's going to come out? And that's the vision where we really get the final victory of Jesus, the second coming the, and the day of judgment. And then it climaxes with new creation. But the climax of Revelation, interestingly, isn't new creation. The climax of Revelation is the fourth vision, which um, is where we get a detailed description of the city of the new Jerusalem. And uh, we're going to look at that a little bit later. And so that's kind of your four visions. And so each of the visions then has a structure within itself, but that will help you navigate broadly. Where am I within the book? And so as we're going from one vision to another, you need to be thinking, I'm not necessarily going to expect that one vision follows chronologically from the next. So as you get to the end of chapter 16 and you then get to chapter 17, you're not necessarily thinking this is what happens after chapter 16. Because as we'll see, the end of chapter 16 kind of finishes with the end of time. And so it's then really surprising when you get to chapter 17 and go, why is there a prostitute sat in the middle of the wilderness when the world has just come to an end and God is now reigning as king? And so if you don't realize this is a new vision, it relates to the previous one, but it is a different vision, then it becomes a little bit confusing. So you can look through some of the details of that in your own time, but I would encourage you become broadly familiar with the overall structure of Revelation, and that will help you along the way. Um, right, are there any questions at this stage? We're gonna do a breakout room activity in a, in a minute or so, but is there anything that people would like clarified at this stage? Nope. Okay, in that case, let's jump into vision one. And uh, we're going to spend a very short amount of time on the first vision, uh, because it's the shortest, but it's also probably the most familiar. It's the one where uh, the exalted risen Jesus appears to John and commissions him to write seven messages to seven churches that are where it says in, in Asia, which is basically what is now modern day Turkey. Um, so that's that's Asia in the Bible doesn't mean kind of the Far East, it means modern day Turkey. And so John uh, is commissioned by Jesus to send seven messages to seven churches. And um, one wonderful activity that you could do in your own time is to read through the description of the risen Jesus. And um, even if you have no clue what the symbols mean, it's impressive and just gives you a sense of, wow, this is this is not G like this is not Jesus meek and mild like he's sometimes portrayed in the uh, in like in in paintings or so on with long flowing blonde hair and blue eyes and like wouldn't wouldn't harm a wouldn't harm a, a fly kind of kind of Jesus. This is what the gracious, merciful, loving Jesus absolutely, but the conquering, exalted, powerful Jesus. 
But something you could do as you read through that description is if you've got cross-reference Bibles to go and think, where in the Old Testament is this symbolism coming from? Where does the symbolism of Jesus having hair white like wool come from? Where does the symbolism of having of him having feet like burnished bronze come from? And it just fills out your picture and your understanding of who Jesus is. And it's, it's wonderful. We need that all-encompassing, glorious vision of Jesus. If the church is going to thrive, if the church is going to... Uh, to really see the kingdom of God advance, we won't do that with a low view of Jesus. We need a, a full biblical understanding of who he is. And that initial vision of Jesus gives us that understanding. Um, he's wonderful. He's glorious, but he's terrifying. And that's why when John sees him, he falls on his face. Like If you saw it, it's, it's like John has just been shot. It's like his body can't cope with the glory that he's just been revealed with. But I love the fact that the first thing that Jesus does when John hits the deck is to put his hand, right hand on his shoulder and say, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, yes, I am absolutely terrifying. Yes, I am the, the kind of person that you look at and you think, who can stand before this awesome God? but I'm on your side and I've won. And that's just that, that sense of fear and comfort that is so appropriate in our relationship with Jesus, that, that there's not just a sense of, oh great, I'm friends with Jesus. There's also the sense of awe, but there's not just the sense of awe, the kind of, ah, he's terrifying, I wanna run away from him. There's the sense of, I would never want to run away with him because he's so captivating and beautiful and he's for me and he's won. And that's the vision that John is met with, which is wonderful. And so he then sends messages to seven churches. And what I'd like us to do in, in a couple of minutes is go into breakout rooms and just think, which of the dangers that are highlighted in the messages that John sends to the different churches, do you think is a danger that you're aware of either in your own life or that you see perhaps in the church in the UK generally. So don't necessarily go around saying, my particular church, this is what we're really bad at. And I just wanna talk about that for a while. Uh, let, let's think, what kind of things are you seeing broadly that you think could be dangers for us as Christians in the West? Um, and if you're happy with a level of, level of vulnerability, what are things in your own life that you think, oh, I could see how there could be a danger where Jesus might want to warn me away from that. So uh, seven churches, um different dangers so to ephesus the danger is that they are abandoning the love that they had at first which could refer to the love that they have for god or in my view probably more likely the love that they had for one another um because it seems like they they do seem to love god you look at the way that describes them serving god so in that case what's the love that they've lost it may well be the love that they had for one another as a church, or it could mean that their love for God has grown cold and it's all coming out of duty. So there's a, a few different options. Um, the danger for the church in Smyrna is persecution is coming. That's the danger that they're about to face. The danger for the church in Pergamum is they're tolerating false teaching and idolatry within their church. And that's the same danger as the church in Thyatira. The church in Sardis, the problem for them is they've got dead or imperfect works. They're spiritually sleepy. They're not spiritually alert. They're, they're, they're kind of half asleep when it comes to their walk with God and when it comes to working and loving God. Um, church in Philadelphia doesn't have an obvious danger, so nothing to highlight there. Um, they basically are doing really well. Um, and the church in Laodicea, probably the most infamous of the churches, their danger is that they're lukewarm. 
Um, which, by the way, when when we talk, when Jesus says, I would rather that you were cold or hot, I don't think what Jesus means there is I'd rather you not be a Christian at all or be a red hot Christian rather than a lukewarm. I think cold in the context of the, the letter to Laodicea, cold is good, hot is good. So cold and hot both refer to being passionate and living and serving Jesus. Lukewarm is just this in between horrible kind of like you drink a lukewarm cold a lukewarm cup of tea and you just think oh no that's not right this should be hot you drink a lukewarm cup of water and you think oh no that's not right this should be cold and jesus is saying you need to you need to be either of those that kind of that extreme of passionate whether that's lovely cold refreshing water or lovely um warm hot um a hot drink but this lukewarm stage is not what i want so why don't we go into breakout rooms for about maybe five or six minutes and just have a bit of a discussion which of these dangers do you think you you see as a possible danger that jesus might want to warn us away from as christians in in the western world particularly brilliant yeah. well we're, we're going to go for another another five ten minutes and then we'll have a we'll have a coffee break so you'll get to uh to to load yourself with some uh, some caffeine or stretch your legs or whatever it is that helps um helps you but yeah we're not going to feed back from that necessarily it's more of a kind of observation uh, d- devotional kind of thing really thinking through what are some of the areas that jesus is bringing challenge in uh, that may well be a challenge to us that we need to hear in our in our day and age and jesus obviously also provides comfort for the churches we didn't mention that explicitly but for each of the churches there's a promise of the reward for conquering and um, I don't think that that means that the different churches have literally different kinds of rewards. I think these are all images for the idea of inheriting eternal life, that um, that actually as the church perseveres and as the Holy Spirit um, enables the saints to persevere, that they come to inherit eternal life. And so there's that uh, Jesus is using that promise of eternal life to motivate his people uh, to, to continue, to continue persevering after him. So that's vision one. We're going to talk about a couple of elements of the the second vision before we have a break, um, and then we'll spend uh, the next next session looking at the the uh, the remainder of the visions of Revelation. So um, vision two has got a particular structure within it that we're going to kind of I suppose slowly run through. But the beginning of vision two is what I've called the backbone of the book of Revelation. And the reason I call it the backbone is if, if you think of it's a pretty, bit of a gruesome illustration, really, but um, that your backbone or your spine is essentially what gives you structure. Um, and sorry to sorry to be gruesome for those of you who are a little bit um, queasy, but if you take your backbone out, there's you're just basically going to collapse in a pile of mush on the floor. There's no structure. There's no strength to you anymore. And I think the chapters four and five of Revelation work a little bit like that within the context of the whole book because there are two central messages, one central to each of these chapters, that if they were not true, the whole of the rest of the book of Revelation would be a lie. And those two messages are chapter four, God is on the throne, and chapter five, the lamb has conquered. And if those two things were not true, the rest of the book of Revelation would be pointless and would actually be a lie. Because if God was not in control, and if Jesus hadn't won, there would be no reason to think that we actually had any kind of hope whatsoever. And so what goes on in chapter four is John has a vision of the throne room of God. 
And if you want to find Old Testament imagery to help you understand a little bit what's going on, the first chapter of Ezekiel is probably going to be your most helpful place to go to. He's drawing on a lot of the language from there, um, but also Isaiah chapter six. And it's this glorious vision of the throne room of God where there's so much stuff going on. There's 24 elders around the throne. There's peals of thunder, lightning and 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 so on there's four living creatures in the midst crying out holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come it just it's this center of constant worship to the mighty king of the whole of creation but in the middle of this vision there's a there's a vision of a glass sea in front of the throne and now there's a few uh, there's a few things that the glass sea is a bit of a symbol of it's partly it's reminding us that we're getting a vision of a, a heavenly temple because in the actual temple you had a um uh, what's called the the bronze sea with where the priests would go to purify themselves so in part there's a, a reference to the fact that we're getting a vision of the, the the heavenly temple the dwelling place of God. but another thing that's helpful particularly in the context of the whole of revelation is the idea that the sea in Revelation very often represents the, the, the uncertain turmoil of the nations. It's where the beast comes out of. And in the Old Testament the, and, and the New Testament, the sea is very much a place to be feared. It's a place where there's storms and waves and people don't like, people aren't thinking we're going to go on a nice cruise. They're thinking, am I going to survive my fishing trip back? It's a scary place. But yet in the heavenly temple that God is seated on the throne in, the the sea is as still as glass, which I think in part is communicating the idea that in front of God, however much turmoil it seems like there is going around in the nations, everything has to ultimately bow the knee to God. He is absolutely and utterly in control. To put it the way John Piper does, Heaven is not falling apart at the seams, which I think is just a, a, wonder, a wonderful way of putting it. That God is sat on his throne. He's not running around thinking, oh, I've got such a long to-do list. How am I going to fit this all in? Oh my goodness, a war has just broken out in this country, right? I need to make sure. Uh, can I have some angels to delegate to, please? Because I'm completely, there's too much going on. That is not the way that God is depicted in Revelation 4. In Revelation 4, God is seated on the throne. He's sovereign. He's in absolute and utter control. And if that wasn't true, it would be a very scary world that we live in. But the reality that Revelation 4 tells us is that God is on the throne. And so that's good news. But actually, it's not enough good news for us to know that there's hope. Because God could be in absolute and utter control, but we could still be enemies of God. And that would not be good news for us. And so that's why we get chapter five, which um, and which shows us that the lamb has conquered. And John gets a vision in this particular chapter of the fact that there's a scroll at the right hand of God. And this scroll represents God's purposes to bring history to its climax. Like there's a whole load of symbolism with scrolls going on. But in short, it's if this scroll is shut, history isn't going anywhere there is no end there is no judgment there is no justice it's a, a scroll that contains god's purposes for judgment and for redemption and no one in heaven or on earth is found who is worthy to open the scroll in other words no one was found who is worthy to bring god's purposes to their climax and so john starts to weep 
And I, I think any of us would as well, if we suddenly were met, particularly if we were in a church that is being persecuted as John is. I mean, he's on the island of Patmos because he's been exiled for the sake of the gospel. And he hears that there's no one who is worthy to open this scroll. There's no one who is going to be able to bring history to its climax, which means for him as a suffering Christian, there's no redemption. There's no justice. There's no moment of reward. History is just going to keep going in cycles. And so he cries until one of the elders says to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scrolls. And there's just this wonderful sense of good news that someone has conquered and is gonna be able to bring history to its climax, at which point John turns around expecting to see a lion and sees a lamb. And the lamb takes the scroll and the whole of heaven and the whole of creation erupts into praise. And it's this wonderful moment where you realize it's not that John expected a lion and then got someone else. It's that the way that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the way that he has conquered is by becoming the lamb that was slain. And from heaven's perspective, this was a victory that was so absolute, so complete, so unequivocal, so undebatable, so final that heaven added a new song to its chorus book. It erupts into praise and heaven sings a new song. And it's the way of Revelation four to five telling us God is in control, but it's not just that he's in control in the abstract. He has done something about the fact that humanity has been in rebellion against him. He has done something about the fact that his people are being persecuted and oppressed and need justice. And the way that he has done that is by winning and conquering through the lion the lamb through Jesus. And so because Revelation 4 and 5 is true, we have hope. And John has hope. And the churches that are being written to have hope. And the whole of Christian history, we have been living with a sense of hope because we know history is not over. History has not yet come to its climax, but it will. And we know that for certain because the lamb has won. It's a wonderful vision. And so that's the backbone really of the book. And off the back of that, and we'll finish with this before we have a break. What then happens is, and I'm going to screen share here to help you. This, this for me was actually the probably the most helpful thing for me to understand in terms of getting my head around Revelation. So the lamb takes the scroll, which represents God's purposes for judgment and for redemption. And then what then happens is he then spends the next chapter opening the seals on this scroll. There's seven of them. And every time he opens them, there's a moment of judgment that happens upon creation and um, what's really helpful to realize is that there are a number of different cycles of seven judgments in revelation in this second vision you get seven seals in chapter six you get seven trumpets in chapters eight to nine and then seven bowls of wrath in chapters 15 to 16 and um, what was really helpful for me was to realize that these are actually action replays of the same periods of history the the seals in a sense the seal is the seals are kind of he heaven's eye view on things that are happening throughout history that are ultimately part of the purposes of god and under the sovereign control of god so we get things like the white horse that represents victory military victory that even military victory and battles are under the sovereign control of god you get the red horse representing conflict and war that even that is under the sovereign 
control of God. God's not out of control on these different things. And so we get, here are the kind of things that are going to be happening within your own lifetime that you're going to see when you see them, don't lose heart because these are happening as a result of the lamb opening the seals. These are happening as a result of the angels blowing the trumpets. These are happening as a result of the angels pouring out the bowls of wrath, that even these catastrophic events are not outside of the sovereignty of God. And it was really helpful for me to kind of understand that. So I'm not then thinking, right, the seals have come to an end and now we've got some trumpets. Oh gosh, what part of history are we in now? I don't think we're meant to see these as chronologically here are, here is everything that's going to happen throughout history. I think that the seals, the trumpets and the bowls are ways of referring to the general kinds of things that we will see happening within our lives, within history, and to understand these are all within the purposes of God. They're not outside of God's control. And um, another thing, another reason why I think it's important to realize that these are action replays of the same, essentially the, the church, uh, the church period from the resurrection of Jesus all the way to his second coming is that each of these cycles ends with a description of the day of judgment. So the seven seals ends with silence in heaven, which is probably a reference to the fact that on that day of judgment, no one will be disputing God's judgment. The trumpets end with worship in heaven where heaven says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ it's got, that's that's the end of the age that's not a description of something happening halfway through history that's a reference to the the day of judgment the second coming and then the bowls end with it is done it is finished and we get the greatest earthquake ever and all cities fall and um so in a sense when you're reading these one way of thinking about it is it's a little bit like watching the same goal in a football match but from lots of different angles. So imagine you're an alien and uh, you come to earth. And one of the things you do when you come to earth is you end up watching a football match. And I don't know what teams you support, so I'm not gonna put my foot in any, uh, in any problems here, but um, imagine your team score. And then the alien looks at this and they think, oh, he scored. And then the alien goes, but why is the same player then scoring five subsequent goals? And every single time he, sc so he scores them, he does it really slowly. The alien doesn't understand. It's the same goal, but from different perspectives. It's, a, it's slow motion. It's action replay. And I think that's perhaps a helpful illustration for thinking through what's going on with the seals, the trumpets and the bowls. These are different perspectives on the same period of history. And now, there is a sense that as you read through Revelation, on the on the level of the narrative it seems like the judgments are getting harsher and harsher but if we're thinking what does this refer to i don't think we're meant to be thinking right the pale horse refers to this particular part of history the hail the fire and the blood as the first trumpet that must be this particular war that went on in history and oh rivers becoming blood maybe that's not yet happened i don't think that's the way we're meant to read it i think we're meant to be thinking what does this tell us about what god is doing throughout history and one of the things that helps us as we're reading through this is to understand that so many of these plagues, so many of these judgments are, are using Exodus language. That part of what God is doing is bringing about his purposes to bring judgment on his enemies and to bring redemption to his people. And I don't think that means we look at every single event in history and go, how is it that God is bringing judgment and redemption through this? I don't think that's how revelation works. But I think what it's communicating to us is God is committed to bringing justice and to bringing redemption for his people. And so that 
I think is the way that we understand those cycles of seven. And that broadly helps us understand a huge chunk of what goes on in the second vision that off the back of the fact that God is in control and that the lamb has conquered, all of these judgments are not things that are outside of God's control. They are things that are within God's control and are bringing about his purposes. And so when we see various things going on around the world, when we see evils happening around the world, that part of what we do, we should do is to mourn. Part of what we should do is to react by, by in tears, really. But that doesn't mean that we despair and think, oh, God's out of control. God's not actually able to bring any good out of this. But actually, we look at events and we go, I still trust that God is able to bring about his purposes. And that in some mysterious way, God is bringing about his purposes in every single thing that is going on worldwide. And that brings us a sense of that, that big sovereignty of God kind of perspective, where we're able to understand that even the catastrophic things that we witness ultimately are still under God's good control. It's not, it's not that heaven's suddenly lost control. Actually, God is in absolute and utter control. And maybe that's a good place to um, stop to have a, a, a quick coffee break. But um, if you did have questions, um, maybe you might want to pop them in the chat over the break. That might just help. Brilliant. It looks like, yeah, people are, people are coming back in. Um, so just a, a, a final comment to make on those cycles of judgment before we continue. Um, is um, the first two of those cycles, the seals and the trumpets, also have what you might call an interlude in the middle. So between the sixth and the seventh judgment, so between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there's an interlude in chapter seven. And um, the theme there seems to be the idea of the sealing of God's people. In other words, it's making the point that God's people are safe eternally, um, despite all of the persecution and opposition that comes their way. And then between the sixth and the seventh, trumpet you also get a, an interlude i mean in, i say interlude in quotation marks because um you could consider it as part of the sixth judgment it's not like it's oh and now for something completely different it's not that kind of interlude um but in chapters 10 and 11 there's an interlude which really is very much focusing on the prophetic ministry of the church and by prophetic ministry um i mean the idea that the church is called to uh, speak on god's behalf to the world and that despite the fact that they are going to be facing opposition and persecution, ultimately God is going to save people as a result of the prophetic ministry of the church. Um, so that's the, the, that's just a, a final thing to add on the um, on the judgments front. Um, again, any any questions that anyone has, anything that people would like to to pick up on or or ask for clarification on at all? No. Oh. Looks like someone does. was that a, a raised hand, Anne? I think you might need to unmute yourself. Yeah, yes, Dan. I'm so grateful that we're here. I'm here. And I did put a question in the chat to you. Oh, sorry, I might not have seen. Well, I didn't send it. Oh. <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought it could be misinterpreted and I didn't want you to do that. Uh, so, and what I was saying is because so many people uh, find revelations so confusing, yeah. Uh, and not everybody's uh, lucky enough to have a Dan in the life to explain things. I was one. I was questioning to myself. Well, why is it there? If we have to have mm -hmm. someone to explain to us, why is it there? And and yeah. as I just went up to do my coffee, I've had my answer. <laughs> God has said to me, "That is why you're there. That is why I've put you there." And everybody that's here now, that's why we're here because we want to know more. 
and it's mm-hmm. God's, God's uh, beautiful plan uh, coming to uh, fruition to and so that's I had my answer <laughs> yeah that, that's that, that's that's wonderful to hear I think it that that is um that is one of the reasons we get the different gifts to different people don't we it's for the for the building up of the body and so actually um although we believe that scripture is clear in the sense that there's there's nothing within scripture that god has put in there that cannot uh, that, that that isn't there to be clearly to speak to us um there is nonetheless the gift of teacher um which means that some people will be gifted and 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 often released and have the time to look into stuff that helps them to clarify it for others so um that's that's really encouraging uh, to yeah to to know that actually one of the ways that god has orchestrated things is that um my spiritual gift your spiritual gift other spiritual gifts help us to build one another up so um yeah very grateful for you for you sharing that um i think another thing i just wrote in the, in, in the mix is um it's one of those things that 2000 years on we're reading it and we're thinking goodness me why is this so complicated um whereas the original readers would have understood it much better now that doesn't that doesn't remove from what you were saying the fact that it's like oh gosh why did god put it there if it's so complicated but it helps us to, it helps us with the process of thinking right okay so part of what we need to do is to become familiar or at least find people who are familiar with the kinds of writing the kind of writing and what would have been understood by that at the time but that's that's really encouraging really good to hear great okay well let's let's move on and like i said any questions anytime please do interrupt or or ping in the chat and i'll see that uh, see that come up um we are going to do one final thing on vision number two. And like I said, vision number two is the biggest one, which is why it's taking uh, the longest out of the lot. But um, if I just pop the, uh, if I just quickly share my screen again to remind us of the structure. Can you see the, the mouse cursor, by the way, kind of moving around on the screen? You yeah. can, okay. So we've got the, the seals. This is kind of chapter six and six, and then the interlude in chapter seven, and then the seventh seal at, um, I think it's at the beginning of chapter eight, actually, the uh, the seventh seal. We then get the trumpets, which is um, including the interlude goes all the way to, um, well, uh, it goes all the way to the end of chapter 11. Uh, let me just quickly make sure I'm not lying. Yes, uh, yep, to the end of chapter 11. And we then get the bowls and that's chapters 15 and 16. But in the middle, there is a section of a few chapters, which um, is talking about similar things, but does it in a very different way. And that is, um, I've suggested, is it the third woe? Because there are there are three woes that go on in the trumpet. And we know what the first woe is, we know what the second woe is. And at the end of chapter 14, um, I think, uh, don't, well, no, actually, it doesn't. It doesn't say it explicitly anywhere. But but it, the the idea seems to be that perhaps this is a description of the third woe that is being referred to. By the way, woe is one of those Bible words that um, kind of refers to. Ah, oh, this is a, a catastrophic thing is is happening. That's kind of the idea that's going on. Um, and so what we're now going to do is we're going to jump into this um, this chapters twelve to fourteen, and I'm going to give a what I think is a brief summary of each chapter. Um, but let me just put the next slide up. We're not going to look at it so long, but just to, to kind of help you realize now is the moment we talk about the beast. Um, I think this is this is one of the best depictions of the beast I've seen, because um, not that we have a very, very detailed description of what the beast would actually look like. But um, that kind of helps us understand the distribution of heads and the distribution of horns that um, there's um, what is it? Uh, 
11 i think horns or something going on 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 the beast and to understand that they are that like it's all on one of the heads it's not like they're not like unevenly split between all of the heads but um, i just thought this would be a nice picture to put up and and i'll i'll take it down for uh, for now but yeah now now is the moment where we end up meeting the beast or should i say more precisely the beasts plural because there are actually two of them um, but the beasts are in chapter 13 which we'll look at in a second but chapter 12 sets the scene and so what goes on in chapter 12 is there's a dragon in heaven a woman who's in labor in heaven and a dragon tries to destroy the newborn woman's son but is unable to and then the dragon himself ends up being cast down to earth and pursues the woman but the woman is kept safe in the wilderness and so the dragon decides to make plans to make war against the rest of the women's offspring it's a very dramatic chapter but what on earth is going on and um i think the the most likely interpretation and again this isn't particularly controversial it's not like um this would be what most commentators would agree is the dragon represents satan the woman represents the people of god so is this is probably not primarily a reference to mary um this is probably a, this is a reference more to the idea of the people of god and um israel or the, the well israel obviously under the old covenant were the, uh, the people of god they give birth so to speak to the messiah and satan wants to destroy the messiah but doesn't manage so he's it's a gruesome image he's standing there as the woman's giving birth in order to devour the child but the child is rescued and taken up to heaven which is a a very kind of snapshot way of saying satan wanted to stamp jesus out but Jesus won at the end of the day and is now exalted to the right hand of the father. And um, what ends up happening as a result is that as a result of the victory of Jesus is Satan gets cast down from heaven. The accuser has been cast down, which is wonderful news. So when we sing uh, that, that amazing hymn before the throne of God above, and we get that, that verse that says, when Satan tempts me to despair, but tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin when we look up and see him there we're not looking up and seeing Satan we're looking up and seeing Jesus because Satan has been cast out of heaven and the accuser has been silenced and the only person that that Satan can bring accusations to is ourselves he has no hearing in heaven for those who are in Christ he has no right to bring accusations to the father because we have been justified because of the death and resurrection of Jesus but Satan knows that his his complete um, defeat is is going to happen soon, and so in the process he is going to try and do as much damage as he possibly can. And so the chapter ends with the dragon standing on the shore of the sea, and the idea is the the, the dragon is going to try and orchestrate opposition to the church. He's going to try as hard as he possibly can to stamp out the people of God. We all know he's going to fail. But he's going to do a he's going to try as well as he can and in the process there's some challenge for us to hear we know the end result the church wins the church conquers but we're in that middle period where we are nonetheless facing the onslaught of the dragon the dragon knows satan knows his time is short but he's going to try as much as he can to wipe out the church and one of the ways that he does that we find out is in chapter 13 where we get the beasts so we get two beasts in this vision the first beast comes out of the sea and the inhabitants of the world worship this beast that's the beast that we saw the picture of um in that in that slide and the beast is given authority to conquer the followers of the lamb which by the way doesn't mean make them lose their salvation it means the ability to kill them um or to the ability to 
make them go lukewarm or whatever it's but in the context of chapter 13 it's primarily the uh, the ability to kill christians and um then there's a second beast that comes out and the the first beast comes out of the sea which seems to represent the kind of the the turmoil of the nations the second beast comes from the land which seems to suggest this might be something a little bit closer to home for john's readers and what the second beast does is he forces people to worship the first beast and he mark and, and then he puts a mark on people's head um which signifies they are worshiping the first beast that's what the, the mark of the beast signals it's um it's not meant to be taken literally it's not like there's literally a 666 written on people's foreheads or so on it's a symbol that refers to the fact that they have given their allegiance to the first beast and so what's probably going on here in, in my reading of it again this would be agreed by a, a lot of a lot of commentators is the first beast the readers would probably have recognized the imperial rome behind it now that doesn't mean that it doesn't have further implications it doesn't mean you just reduce the beast to rome and it's like great whew, no need to worry about the whole beast thing ever for for the for the rest of our lives because it was rome so we don't need to worry about it i think actually the fact that the early readers would have read this and gone, whoa, I recognize Rome behind that, um, means that we need to be looking out for beast-like characters behind different institutions and governments and, and systems within our own context. But it's most likely Imperial Rome. And part of the reason for that is the kind of thing that the first beast is requiring, worship, is the kind of thing that the emperor at the time that Revelation was written was requiring of himself at least in the area that John lived in. And the second beast probably refers to um, local authorities that live kind of closer to where John is. So John's living, well, he's on the Isle of Patmos, but it's close to Asia Minor, to like modern day Turkey. Rome is miles away, but there are people close to where John's churches are that are trying to enforce worshiping the emperor. They try and enforce the fact that you need to go and sacrifice to the emperor. And it pretty much maps on a pretty much maps on precisely to what we get going on in chapter 13, which is that the second beast is going around saying you need to worship the emperor. If you don't worship the emperor, you're not going to be able to buy anything. You're going to be outcast from society. And that's pretty much exactly what happened for the early Christians. They had a decision to make. Do we worship the emperor and that means that we're then allowed to go to the meat markets and buy meat and so on that means that we're not going to be seen as these weird people we're not going to be outcast we're not going to be persecuted or do we refuse to worship the emperor in which case worst case scenario we're we're risking our lives best case scenario we're going to be rejected by society and this is i think something that would have been heard by the original readers and they would have seen immediate challenge they wouldn't have been reading this thinking ah Far in the future, there's going to be a guy who's going to rule the whole world and is going to force us to worship him. They're thinking, this is happening in our day. This is the kind of thing we're faced with. We are being faced with the pressure to worship Rome. Are we going to cave into that pressure or are we going to maintain our allegiance to the true king? And like I said, I think I don't think this means you reduce chapter 13 to the first century and you say, right, that's it. We don't need to worry about the beast anymore. Because part of the point of Revelation is to say there is a spiritual reality that's going on behind the scenes that although, yes, I do think that chapter 13, when it's talking about the beast, is talking about Rome, the spiritual reality is the big deal. And that spiritual reality that demands allegiance of people lies behind a whole host of things throughout the centuries. And so I think the fact that we're 
referring to a spiritual reality lying behind it means that we read chapter 13 and we can read it as the warning and the challenge that it is in the same way that the first century readers do because there are countless things within our world that will demand our allegiance in such a way that it removes our allegiance from king jesus where you think if i go down the path of giving my life to that it means that I won't actually be able to, I, like, I can't worship Jesus and give my life to this at the same time. Now, in some countries, that might be very obviously totalitarian dictatorships where you're not, where you have to pledge allegiance to the state. You have to pledge allegiance to the king. And if you don't, you're going to be killed. That might be very obvious. I think in our culture, it's probably more subtle things. The kind of things where we resist uh, we we cave into the temptation of not standing up for the truth at moments where it really matters, not just the kind of obnoxious thing where we just kind of, I don't know, stand on the street corner telling everyone that they're going to hell and the, and, and so on. But actually the moments where, where we really do have to stand up for the truth, where we're put on the spot and our allegiance to Jesus is questioned. And in that moment, we've got a decision to make. Are we going to worship the beast, so to speak, or are we going to maintain our allegiance to Jesus? And in the process run the risk of temporarily being conquered by the beast, run the risk of temporarily having a loss within our lives. And so I think, Reve I think Revelation 13 speaks to the 21st century in a real, in a really strong way, actually. Um, so that's the way I'd read it. Some people would read it in a slightly more idealistic way. So they would say, this is primarily referring to the spiritual reality. And obviously the first readers would have understood Rome um whereas i would be reading it more from the point of view of saying i think john is referring to rome but the spiritual reality that's behind rome goes throughout the centuries in a sense it's kind of swings and roundabouts it comes down to do you go for an idealist interpretation this is primarily symbolic of the struggle between good and evil or do you go for a preterist interpretation this is probably something in the first century but the spiritual principles still apply and i think you can pick whichever one you want um, out of the, well, not whichever one you want, whichever one you think makes the most sense of, of the text. But I don't think that the warning of Revelation 13 lies in the first century. And if any of us ever decide, I'm going to go for a preterist interpretation of Revelation because it means that the threat and the challenge of Revelation can just be pushed back into the first century, I think we've misunderstood Revelation. I think this speaks to the church throughout the centuries. And it speaks with warning, as does chapter 13, but it also speaks with comfort, as does chapter 14. Because in chapter 14, there is a vision of 144,000 who are sealed with the seal of God on their foreheads. So 666, marking those who have pledged their allegiance to the beast. The seal of God is on the foreheads of those who have pledged their allegiance to Jesus. And they are safe. It says they've not defiled themselves with women and that they are virgins. I don't think that's a comment on sex being bad or sex being good. It's a comment on the fact that they are pure in the sense that they, there's, a, there's a purity about these people, that they are, um, they are, they're not in any way defiled. And obviously under the old covenant, if you, like, you would not be allowed into the temple unless you had purified yourself after having sexual relations. Um, it's nothing to do with like it's not making a comment on on your morality it's making a comment on the ritual purity and your ability to then go into the temple and so the point that's being made here isn't everyone should remain celibate i think there's a i think there's something really good and positive about that and we read about that in first corinthians 7 but the point that's being made here is all believers all those who have pledged their allegiance to god whether they are married or unmarried um, whether they are not yet married or widowed they are pure. 
they are in Christ, they have been cleansed, and they will be presented pure and blameless and holy on that final day. And there's also a description in chapter 14 of the earth being harvested, which I think is a, a symbol of final judgment. And so off the back of a very dark two chapters in chapters 12 and 13, we get actually a, a chapter of real comfort in chapter 14, that as the church are challenged to endure in chapter 13, they see what does enduring lead to, and it leads to everlasting life with Jesus. And that's the, the constant double-edged sword of Revelation, is it, it gives us a challenge, but with the same swipe, you get the comfort of when you listen to this challenge, when you allow the Holy Spirit to make you hear this challenge, there's the hope of eternal life, there's the hope of resurrection that is gonna come. So there we go, that's uh, that's that particular vision done, by the way. Um, well, not, not done in the sense that we've kind of done it justice, but um, we're kind of at the end of vision two. Um, does anyone have any questions at all about anything we've done in vision two that people would like to ask? I do. Yep, go for it, Anne. Okay, uh, sorry about this. I don't want anybody to be uncomfortable about this, but just listen to what you're saying, uh, Dan, is that allegiance to God is, is sovereign. That's what we should be doing. I just wanted to talk about the coronavirus, you know, the injections. Are we not giving our allegiance to another God? Are we, are not, is, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, he does yeah. say in, in Psalm 91, no plague will come near our dwelling place. Mm. Uh, so, um, and so many things. So, and that, that's his promise. Uh, so which promise are we standing on? That's Right, so the, the coronavirus. So my, my take on the COVID injection is, um, I can see some reasons that certain Christians would have some concerns, but I'm, um, but having looked into those, I wouldn't be concerned myself. Now that, that wouldn't actually be down to anything to do with the mark of the beast. Um, it would be more the question concerning, like, how, how was it developed? Was it developed in an ethical way? And having looked into it in detail, I'd come to the conclusion that, yeah, I am happy with the way that it's been developed. The reason I wouldn't go down the road of thinking that it links with the beast is um, the the point of the the mark of the beast is it's, it's the idea that you are pledging allegiance to something in a way that goes against your allegiance to Jesus. So in other words, you can't confess Caesar is Lord and confess Jesus is Lord because it's one or the other. Um, whereas my take with something like a, a vaccine would be unless, for example, a government were saying if um, you need to take this vaccine as your demonstration that your ultimate allegiance lies with us rather than Jesus. At that point, I'd be thinking, fair point. I think we got the mark of the we got the mark of the beast going on. But my current reading of the the vaccine situation is that, at least in the UK, that's not the that's not the line the government are taking. I don't think I, I, I think they'd get themselves into a lot of trouble if they did that. So I realise that's a that's something that a lot of people have been talking about and debating. And I realise we could probably discuss that for quite a while. But that would be why I wouldn't go down the um, the mark of the beast route for the vaccine. Um, partly because I think. The mark of the beast is um, is actually, I think, much more obvious than I think we often make it out. So I think a lot of the time people are people look into things thinking, oh, is it is it a microchip? Is it something like that? And I think the point of Revelation 13 is taking on the mark of the beast is doing something where you're very obviously giving your allegiance to something which goes against what 
Jesus would be. And my on my reading of it, that wouldn't be the case with a with a vaccine. Um, but we could discuss that further. It might just not be the the best place to continue down that line. But I appreciate appreciate you bringing it up. Um, great. Okay. Any other questions that people would want to um, to pick up on at all? No. All right. In that case, let's jump into Vision Three. Um, we'll do a break at um, eleven, and then we'll come back at quarter past, and then we'll do our final session. We'll do the final session on eschatology. So, uh, what I'll do is give a, a bit of an overview of how Vision Three works. So, Vision Two is the big long one, in a sense, perhaps the most complex one to get our heads around. So, you've just got your head around the most complex part of Revelation, um, <laughs> with the small exception of the Millennium. But um, um, for those of you who have heard about the millennium, you might understand what I'm on about, but um, you've basically got your head around the most complex part. Um, what we then get with Vision 3 is a tale of two cities. Vision 3 starts in Revelation 17 and 18 with a vision of a prostitute who is sat on the back of a scarlet beast and her name is Babylon the Great. And she commits sexual immorality with the kings of the earth, which is probably an image of idolatry, by the way. So sexual immorality very often in the Bible is a is um, obviously it's a bad thing in itself, but it's often used as a, a symbol of idolatry. She's drunk on the blood of the saints, which suggests that part of what she's trying to do is to stamp out the church. And um, an angel explains to John who the prostitute and the beast are. And so again, as with as with the beast in chapter 13, they're probably meant to be identified with Rome and the Roman Empire. Um, but again, we're thinking, what's the spiritual reality that's lying on behind, lying behind this? Now, the reason that um, it seems that it's identified with Rome is that the woman sits on seven hills and the seven hills of Rome were kind of renowned within within the ancient world. And she's also described as the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth, which that wouldn't be Rome in our day, but in their day, that very much would have been. So they're probably looking at this thinking, oh, okay, there's a warning for us again to hear here. Um, and what we see going on is this, th this um, description of someone who looks incredibly impressive. She looks strong, she looks rich, she looks powerful, and she looks like she's gonna be able to completely wipe out the church. But then what we get in chapter 18 is that she's unveiled for who she truly is and God brings judgment upon her, which is a, basically a, a moment of comfort for the church that the, the, the empire that is getting behind trying to wipe out Christians will one day be judged by God and will be shown for what, the, what it truly is. I mean, there was a phrase in the ancient world, Roma Eterna, eternal Rome, this idea of Rome's never going to fall. Rome's an eternal place. Um, Anyone who's read their Old Testament, and if the Romans had read their Old Testament and believed it, they probably would have done stuff differently, would realize that for an empire that doesn't worship the true God to claim we are going to last forever is a big mistake to make. No empire lasts forever. No kingdom lasts forever apart from the kingdom of God. And in that sense, God bringing destruction on Rome, which did eventually happen in the fifth century AD, but I don't think the point that John is making is here is exactly when Rome is going to be destroyed. The point he's making is God will bring ultimate judgment on the enemies of God's people. God will bring justice. And um, that's what goes on in chapter 18. And so it's that that moment where heaven rejoices because God has brought justice. Now, this isn't heaven gloating over the fact that people are being killed. That's not the way it works. 
the way it works is this is heaven rejoicing that God is bringing justice on the system that has led to the killing and martyrdom of so many Christians and who has tried to oppose his people. And so, again, if we're thinking about what's the spiritual reality that's going on behind this, I think there is a spiritual reality going on behind Babylon that we can see continuing down the centuries, that the, the demonic influence behind what Rome was involved in, in trying to promote idolatry and trying to turn people away from worshipping Jesus is behind a lot of things that are going on within our own world. Um, it might be, to, to, just, to just take one example, the, the, um, the intolerance of tolerance nowadays, where back in the day, tolerance used to mean I can disagree with you, but still respect you and love you. Nowadays, tolerance means you need to agree with everything I believe in, otherwise you're a bigot. And I think, I think we're seeing something of the spirit of Babylon behind some of that, because what it's doing is basically forcing Christians into a position where you either you either end up being outcast for saying for stating what you believe, despite the fact that you're doing it in a loving way, or you end up having to compromise. And I think there's so many other examples where we can see the, the the spirit behind Babylon that is trying to either destroy Christians by killing them, which happens in many parts of the world, or to destroy Christians by silencing them or making them so lukewarm and so ineffective that it's not going to do any damage to the kingdom of darkness whatsoever. And we need to recognize sometimes the reality that's going on behind something that sometimes might feel quite harmless. There's very often a spiritual reality going on behind it. And part of what Revelation does is it opens our eyes and helps us to see what's going on, sometimes behind very normal day-to-day -day events. So that happens. But then off the back of that, we get in a sense, the climax of vision two, which is millenn the, the, the second coming of Jesus, final judgment and new creation. And um, in your own time, you could have a little bit of a look through the different options for the millennium. I don't think now is necessarily the best time to go through it. It's um, my bottom line would be for those of you who are aware of, of the millennium, you might be aware of the, the, the controversies. For those of you who aren't aware, have a bit of a look at the notes that might that might help you. My bottom line would be I don't think that your view of the millennium should make the dramatic difference that it does sometimes make in some people's eschatology, or not so much just their eschatology, but in terms of the way they live their lives. Because I think what is absolutely clear, both from Revelation and from elsewhere, is this. Jesus will return, and he will return bodily and will defeat Satan, whether or not that's what's being described in chapter 19. In some people's reading of Revelation, the rider on the white horse is not actually a description of the second coming. It's a it's a picture of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Some very godly people believe that. I disagree. I see why they get to that conclusion. I don't think it's a, the be all or end all in terms of does Revelation 19 have to be a, an explicit reference to the second coming? Whatever the case, Jesus will return. We get whether you get that from Revelation 19 or from 1 Thessalonians 5 or from the beginning of Acts or from the end of 1 Corinthians, Jesus will return. He will come back. Another thing that is absolutely certain is that those who have died and suffered for the Lord will be vindicated. And whatever your view of the millennium, which is the first six verses of Revelation 20, we, I think we all have to agree that surely part of what Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6 is trying to communicate is there will be vindication and justice for all 
who have given their lives to Jesus and have suffered in some way or another. Whether you are pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, and some of you, that may mean nothing to you. Some of you, you may be very aware of those debates. Whatever you believe about the millennium, justice will be done for all followers of Jesus. We will reign with Christ forever. And that leads to the renewal of all things at the end of, this, of, of the, uh, the third vision. And so we get off the back of final judgment, off the back of the fact that God is bringing absolute and perfect justice, we then get new creation. And uh, one thing that, if I'm thinking like, where, where do I want to finish off talking about revelation? You might think the best place to finish off is to finish by talking about new creation. And that's a wonderful thing to dwell on. And what I'd encourage you in your own time is read the first eight verses of revelation and just have a moment just thinking about what will it be like to live in a world where the dwelling place of God is with his people and the dwelling place of people is with God. What will it look like to live in a world where there's no death, where there's no tears, where there's no sadness, no mourning? It's going to be wonderful. And that's how the vision number three climaxes. But where I want to finish in terms of looking at the book of Revelation is where Revelation finishes, because Revelation doesn't finish at the end of vision three. Interestingly, it doesn't finish with a description of new creation. It actually finishes with a description of the new Jerusalem, which when you look at the symbolism, what is the new Jerusalem referring to? I think it's referring to the church. It's referring to the people of God, because the new Jerusalem is described as a bride that has made herself ready for her husband. And so in a sense, I think very often we finish Revelation and we think, oh, yeah, we get a description of new creation. It's amazing. And we forget that there's a whole other chapter after. And the point of that chapter is to describe the beauty and the glory of the church in eternity. And I heard Andrew Wilson preach on this a, a few years back, and I think he had a great illustration for the fact that we can sometimes get fascinated and obsessed with the new creation and forget about the fact that Revelation climaxes with the bride, the church. And he was talking about the fact that he went to a, he'd been to a wedding recently, uh, one of his family members, and it was just in the most wonderful place, like amazing scenery, beautiful venue. And he said, if he had been going around saying, this is amazing, look at this venue, look at this scenery, uh, there would come a point where his relative, who was the groom, would probably come to him and say, stop obsessing about the scenery. Let me come and show you the bride. And it's like Revelation is doing that. The beginning of the final vision, we get in chapter 21, verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Where does Revelation climax? Yes, new creation is amazing. And we're going to get a bit of a chance to look at that when we talk about eschatology in a minute. But Revelation climaxes with the fact that Jesus has prepared a people for himself who will be so spotless and pure that it's like describing a bride who is spotless. And what then ensues, what then comes after what that angel says is a vision of a cubic city that descends from heaven. And you might think, oh, that's a bit of an anticlimax. Come, I will show you the bride. I was expecting something a little bit more impressive. And you read through it and you realize, actually, no, this is impressive. And the reason it's impressive is not that the church will be a giant cubic city. The reason it's impressive is that what a giant cubic city symbolizes and represents is the very dwelling place of God. 
The, as far as I know, the only other building or room in the whole Bible that is described as a cube is the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. And so the, the fact that the bride of Christ, the city of the New Jerusalem, the church in eternity is described as a cubic city is, is a way of saying the church will be the dwelling place of God for the whole of eternity. God will live with his people in a brand new creation. And it tells us there will be no temple in that new creation because the lamb and God himself will be the temple. It's like the, you, you could not get a more dense description of the presence of God than that which will be in the church for the whole of eternity. And we get to experience part of that in the present. We get to experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the present, but we have not yet even seen what it will be like in eternity. It will be every, so everything good you can possibly imagine about the presence of God multiplied by a million in our minds because we can't get our heads around it. And there will be no evil. There will be no sin. There will never be that moment where you think, I'm really tempted to do something I know that God doesn't approve of. That won't be a thing that we feel in eternity. Why? Because the presence of God will be so saturating the whole of God's people and the whole of God's creation that we don't want to sin. It's not even like, you know what, I'm feeling tempted, but I don't want to. It's like, I'm not even tempted because I'm so aware of the presence of God. I'm so aware of the goodness of God. I'm so aware of the wonder of God. And I'm so aware that he has created, he has created a beautiful bride for himself. That's amazing. Like in, in any human wedding, it's not the groom that makes the, wide the, bride, the bride beautiful. Like no groom is able to say, I, I am the one who has beautified my bride. If, if that's the way that you're approaching your marriage, I think we, you probably need to stop saying those kind of things or you might be on the receiving end of a slap potentially. But when it comes to the ultimate wedding, who is the one that has made the bride beautiful? Who is the one that has beautified the bride? It's the ultimate bridegroom. Jesus is the one who has who will beautify us. Jesus is the one who is committed to his people being so pure and spotless and blameless on that final day. And he laid down his life. And so in one sense, as we're coming, kind of coming to the end of Revelation, you could summarize Revelation as a romance. Revelation begins with the unveiling of the groom. In chapter one, we get a description of the bridegroom the risen, exalted Lord Jesus. And all the way throughout Revelation, we get various villains that are trying to lead to the bride being led astray, trying to attract the bride, trying to make the bride unfaithful, trying to kill the bride, trying to stamp the bride out. But it ends with the groom returning in glory, claiming his bride for himself. And Revelation finishes with a wedding. So in that sense, Revelation is a romance. It begins with the bridegroom and it ends with the bride. And that makes God and the bridegroom look most glorious. So the fact that Revelation, in a sense, ends with a description of us doesn't mean that we're the center stage for the whole of eternity. Actually, the fact that the bridegroom, that the bride is so beautiful, gives glory to the bridegroom and gives glory to the creator. And so that's Revelation in a massive, in a, in a very small nutshell, actually, we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about it. But that 
hopefully has at least given you a bit of an appetite for getting your your teeth into the book for hopefully giving you a bit of a framework so that as you're reading through it you're still probably going to be as all of us will be for i'm sure the rest of our lives confused by some of the symbols and the imagery but that we're not reading it going i haven't got a clue what's going on we're reading it going i might not understand all the details but i know that this is talking about something so breathtaking and so beautiful that i want to spend my life not just studying this but living in light of it so there we go we are done on on the revelation front um should we take a 15 minute break and then if there are any clarifying questions on revelation we can start the next session with that i realize that was a particularly information heavy session there wasn't much of a chance to to do group work or anything but we'll start next session with a a bit of um questions if there are any and then we'll uh, end up looking at the topic of eschatology so Great.